Every year we take time to preach a series uh, of sermons that we title the Church Improvement Series. And typically, uh, these uh, sermons will focus on one or more of our church's core values. But as Pastor Ken mentioned last week, this year we're focusing on the mission of our church to display the greatness of God as we declare God's greatness, as we love God and others, and serve others for joy in his honor. And so we're looking at now week two. So we started kind of out of order, but that's all right. So we're doing three, two, one. So this is the second of three. Just know that you'll get to the, the starting next week uh, when uh, uh, Paul preaches to us about the first part. So last week, once again, Pastor Ken uh, talked to us about serving others. And this week, we're talking about loving God and others. So let me uh, pray for us. Father, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, help us to listen to you, give us ears to hear. Father, there are many distractions that we bring with us, many things that we have that occupy our minds throughout the week. But I pray now that you would lay those aside, that you would quiet us, that you would help us to be still and know that you indeed are God. Lord, as we look at the passage today, as we consider what it means for us as a church, I pray that you would help us uh, to be inspired uh, by your word, be challenged by your word, be changed by your word. Father, we want to be a people that are transformed uh, by your spirit, changing from uh, unbelievers to believers to mature believers. Help us to encourage one another uh, as we leave here uh, and, and as we live out uh, what I think is in this text. And Father, I pray that you would give me words, your words to speak, uh, that they would, by your spirit, be received uh, as you intend. And Father, help all of us, once again, to have ears to hear and hearts that might believe and receive. Father, we need your mercy. And as we prayed and as we took communion together, it's a reminder that we are a blood-bought people. We're not a self-made people, but we're a people who are indebted eternally to the Lamb of God. So Father, I pray that he would be what we would rejoice in today. He would be the object of our affection and our love. So fill us now by your Spirit with a love of Jesus and may that overflow into a love for one another. I pray that that would be true of us this day. In his name we pray, amen. Well, for Christmas this past year, my son Isaac got me a gift. Surprised that I'm mentioning his name. It was a biography about the missionary John G. Patton, and it's from the Trailblazers series of biographies, and we're currently reading it together. I, I think we actually have a copy in our church library if you want to check it out. And it is a fascinating story if you don't know anything about John G. Patton. Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands in the South Pacific, and he was a man of extreme devotion. In the face of countless obstacles, he continued steadfastly to work to bring Christianity to the inhabitants of those islands. And the inhabitants of those islands happened to be cannibals. I want to read to you just a short excerpt from a different biography about Patton. It says that John G. Patton and his wife set sail to the island in 1858. But this decision did not come without criticism. On one account before leaving, a respected elder chided the couple, you will be eaten by cannibals. 
To which Patton responded, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. That's kind of a heavy thing, but man, talk about devotion. And in his life, Patton faced trial after trial um, as he worked to bring the message of the gospel to these unreached people to the, of these islands. But he remained, he remained devoted to that mission. Right? Within three months of landing on the island of Tana, his wife and his newborn son died. So he spent many years by himself. He was attacked. He was threatened. At one point, he was even driven off the island. In his autobiography, he wrote that, our continuous danger caused me now sometimes to sleep with my clothes on, that I might start at a moment's warning. My faithful dog, Clutha, would give a sharp bark and awake me. God made them fear this precious creature and often used her in saving our lives. Reading about a missionary that has this type of commitment and devotion, steadfastness of character, right, it challenges my understanding, it's our understanding of what it means to live a life devoted to something. So even though his life was repeatedly threatened, right, he was urged multiple times by both uh, natives who had come to Christ and missionaries that he should leave because it was too dangerous. He, he suffered devastating uh, losses. In spite of all of this, Patton remained steadfastly devoted to a task that he knew God had called him to. God had set before him, and he served it his entire life. He died at age 82. And so the question that I think about as, we're, as Isaac and I are reading this book, and as I think about as we approach this text, is what are the things that we're devoted to? What are the things that you are devoted to in your life? And what are the motivations behind those devotions? How strong are those devotions? Right? Will they stand up to the face of opposition? In the passage that we're looking at this morning, Luke tells us that the believers in the early church devoted themselves, and he lists four things in verse 42. As we consider these devotions, I want us to briefly consider the events leading up to that point. And so I want us to go back and just consider what was it that led up to 242, Acts 2, verse 42. So what happened before that led up to these devotions? Well, if you turn just a page or two, back to Acts chapter 1, right, we, we see that Jesus had promised his disciples right before he ascended into heaven that they would receive his Holy Spirit and that they would, uh, that, um, they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came and that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Also then in Acts 1, 5, we're told that the company of persons in all of the disciples was about 120 people. So 120 individuals, right? We're meeting together. But then when we turn over to Acts chapter 2, the beginning we see the, the dramatic arrival of the Holy Spirit, right? It came down upon these uh, as they were praying in sounds of rushing wind and flames of fire. It was loud enough that actually devout Jews from every nation, it said, who were, who were in the area, heard the sound and came to see what was going on. Because each one of them heard these Galileans, 
speak of the mighty works of God in their own languages. And so not only did, did, did they hear this wind, but all of a sudden there was this uh, outburst of the works of God in, in all of these various languages. They were amazed and perplexed, it says in verse 12. They were saying, what does this mean? Others mocked and said, they must be drunk, must be filled with new wine. And then Peter preaches to them. He says, these men are not drunk. Instead, it is a fulfillment of the words uttered by the prophet Joel. It was an unfolding of God's, uh, that which was hidden and now God was revealing. And as Nicaeo read, the people were cut to the heart and they asked, what should we do? Acts 2, 38, 39, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So the invitation goes out, and the response then we see in verse 41 is that the crowd responds, and those who received his word were baptized, and the number was an astounding 3,000 souls. So the church went from 120 to 3,120 in a matter of a day. This is amazing, right? This is uh, astounding. And yet Jesus had told his disciples in John 16, right? It is better, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's exactly what happens as Peter preached to this crowd in Acts 2. And so it was through Peter's preaching that God had transformed the lives of these 3,000 souls. And as a result, we get to our passage. Luke tells us uh, that, um, that they responded by devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. These are the responses to God's transforming grace. And God uses these devotions even today in our church. These are the things that we're, we're committed to even today. We see these repeated in the New Testament. And they're also the things that God uses in the lives of believers as a means to grow us and mature us in Christ. And so this morning, I want us to consider uh, our own devotion to these four characteristics of worship and how God uses them, these same devotions, to mature us in our own walk with Christ. And so our, the main point uh, this morning is that God transforms the lives of unbelieving sinners to devoted followers of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. As God's people, we respond to God's grace by devoting ourselves. And the first thing is to instruction in God's word. To instruction in God's word. So as I said, the first thing that Luke tells us is that these believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I think that it's significant that he begins with the teaching of the apostles. right? Because it was because of this teaching, these believers came to faith. Peter preached and they came to faith. And they will grow and mature in their faith through the apostles' teaching. What, what, was the, what did they teach? Right? That the, well, we have an example of what, what Peter taught, and then we have more examples throughout Acts. But think about what Jesus told his disciples before he left. Matthew 28, Jesus gave his disciples kind of a blueprint 
what he was to teach as they made disciples. He said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which we saw happening in Acts, which we have seen happening even in our own midst as uh, people have been baptized. But then here's what was taught, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I've commanded you. And Jesus ends with a promise, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is with his church even, even now. So the teaching, and I want to read a quote a pastor here, uh, said that the teaching of the apostles refers to the body of truth concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah and Lord who makes all of God's promises come true for all of God's people. It's not merely the retelling of his birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, but the authoritative declaration of what those historical events mean, especially in light of God's revelation contained in the Old Testament. So what did the apostles teach? Well, we know in part because we have the rest of the New Testament. They explained the Old Testament. They talked about Christ in light of that. The apostles' teaching is given to us today, now, what we have in the scriptures. It's why preaching is essential and central to our corporate worship time together. Right? It's why our small groups spend time studying the word. Right? That's not all that they do, uh, but the word is central to every one of our small groups. And think about what, what do we do in our small groups? Well, it's a place where we can ask questions about the text, things we don't understand. It's a place where we can seek to understand and apply God's word, right? that obedience part, to our very lives. Because right? remember, Jesus said, he told his disciples to teach them not simply to know, but to obey all that he had commanded. At college, um, as a student, it was through a small group Bible study that I was, I don't know if I was encouraged or I just was finally brave enough uh, to voice all of my doubts and questions about the Bible and about faith. And the other guys in the Bible study were really patient with me as I raised my objections one by one the faith. And I remember they would give me assignments. Steve, go search the scriptures, find examples of what you're talking about. And God used their influence in my life to bring me to Christ, to show me Christ. I really want to encourage every one of us to not view our small groups as places where we come with right answers. I said, I would love it if we would use our time in small group to grow in our faith by seeking to go deeper in our understanding of God's word, by, by admitting that we have questions, by asking questions, and that we would grow by applying God's word more specifically to our lives. Right? The text tells us that, that the, the apostles were uh, performing signs and ever, there was fear among all the people. We don't have the apostles. We don't, we don't have anybody doing miracles here today, do we? But yet we have those miracles recorded in his word, and we have his word. We don't have the apostles with us, but we do have the scriptures. In fact, we have more of God's word at our disposal than these believers did in Acts 2. So I want to encourage each of us to devote ourselves to studying and responding in obedience to God's word. It's where we learn who God is, where we learn to grow in our love for God. And as we learn and grow together, especially in small groups, 
we'll learn to love one another, I think, even more as we appreciate where each one of us is coming from, as we see God at work in each one of us. And that brings us to the second point, where God transforms the lives of unbelieving sinners to devoted followers of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And as God's people, we respond to God's grace by devoting ourselves right, to the instruction of God's word, but then secondarily to fellowship with God's people. The second characteristic that we find uh, in verse 42 is uh, fellowship that, that marked the church. The fellowship, right? The, the, the body of believers. Now, I don't know what comes to mind when you think of fellowship, but growing up, all the churches that I attended, uh, they'd have a fellowship hall. Uh, it was either in the basement or just off the sanctuary where coffee would be served uh, after the service. And there, there was an announcement regularly, right? Join us after the service for a time of fellowship. And so I grew up thinking that fellowship meant adults standing around drinking coffee, talking about football, right? It, okay, I guess that's, that's fellowship, or at least an example of fellowship. But I think the word, well, I don't just think, the word fellowship actually implies a much stronger meaning, much stronger partnership in, in something than merely sharing a cup of coffee. And we see it played out in this passage. The word fellowship indicates a close association, emphasizing what is common between the individuals. In this case, right, once again, it's the grace of God at work in the lives of these believers. It's what they believe it's where they're placing their hope and their trust. It's, it's, it's what resulted in their brand new lives of faith in Jesus Christ. So remember in Acts 1.15, right? How many people were there? 120 were in the assembly. And then in 2.41, we see that number jump by 3,000. I think it's pretty safe to say uh, that many, if not most of these people, were strangers to one another. It's not like they all knew each other from, from high school, all hung out. There were a lot of strangers. And yet God had radically transformed their lives. The spiritual reality is that God had transferred them from the domain of darkness, right, a place of, of spiritual death and condemnation, to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, reconciliation with God and eternal life. And this radically changed how they viewed and treated one another. Before they were strangers, and now they were brothers and sisters in Christ. In verse 44, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds, their proceeds uh, to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I think the first thing that we notice when we think about this new assembly is that they were all together. Right? Day by day, they were together. They worshiped together in the temple as a large assembly. They gathered in each other's homes to eat. And I love that it says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Right? If you regularly cook for people in your home, then you probably know that not every meal is received with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Right? But, but that was the spirit of the people there. Right? They studied together, they prayed together, they praised God together. What united them was the gospel. 
but united them with God's mercy and their love for Jesus Christ. Right? I would say the same thing is absolutely true for us today. Right? We, are, we are united by the gospel, not anything like a, a political affiliations or our race or our income or our interests or how we school our children or any other views that we hold on any number of topics. This was, in fact, what Jesus had prayed for. In John 17, starting with verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask these only, I do not ask for these only, but, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, he's, he's praying not just for, for his disciples there, he's praying all the way to us here today. He said that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and I love them, even as I loved you. I'm sorry, even as you loved me. Wow. Jesus prayed that our unity with one another in Christ would be as close as Jesus and the Father. This eternal relationship and that our relationship with one another would be that close. And through his prayer, Jesus shows us that God uses our unity and fellowship as a witness to a watching world. We see this, right? In verse 47, it says that they had favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It was their unity. It was their commitment. It was God used it all to continue to build his church. The reality, and I'm sure we could all attest to this, unity in fellowship is not easy. It does take devotion. It's something we have to be devoted to. Notice the words all and any in verses 44 and 45. Right? It says, all who believed had all things in common. And then in verse 45, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I think what Luke is trying to tell us is that nobody was excluded. Christ united all of them. Christ unites all of us to one another. Now there will always probably I hope, right, be people that you will find it very easy to connect with, right? The, the, the people you get along with, that, that you feel uni, uh, unified with, right? It'll be easy for you to be with them. You enjoy doing things together, sharing life together. But often, right, why is that? It's because we share things in common. We share other things in common. Yeah, we, oh, you have Christ, but man, we sense of humor or their, their hobby or their interest, or whatever it is. But unity in fellowship with others who we share less in common with, that's more challenging, isn't it? And yet when we are committed to extending that same fellowship to all the believers that God places within our church, within our body, what does it do? It, it shows that we treasure Christ. Right? It shows a watching world that we are one because Christ has made us one. Well, it wasn't just their being together, right? The text, Luke also tells us 
that their devotion to the fellowship extended beyond just the activities that they did. Their fellowship was put on display through their concern for the material needs of one another. And I, I think here people get a little nervous, right? right? Their unity was not simply theoretical, it was concrete. Right? People were selling their possessions to help provide for those who had needs within the church. We've got to be careful, right? I think th- these verses have been abused in the past by some. Right? This is not a proof text for communism or communal living in any way. And we know this because of what we see in the text. We see evidence uh, that all of this was voluntary. This is what they wanted to do. This is what they chose to do. It wasn't required, it was voluntary. We see evidence of, of this when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, when they sold their property in Acts 5. Right now, we're not gonna get to that, but they sinned uh, by pretending. So what they did is they, they sold their property and they, they pretended that they sold it for less than they actually did, and then they pocketed part of the money. Probably wouldn't have been a problem, except that they said, oh, we're giving all the proceeds to the church because we're so generous. Well, they, they sinned by pretending to give the entire amount to the church when, in fact, they, they kept part of them for themselves. But listen to what Peter says in Acts 5, verse 4. Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man but God. What we get from that is that this was not required. Right? That there was no obligation for them to, to give even the full amount of what they sold their property for. In our passage, right, we understand that their selling and their giving wasn't required or forced, but their devotion to the fellowship moved them to care for one another in ways that were very generous. Very generous and very sacrificial. Think about what Jesus taught right? when he was asked about the greatest commandment. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. If we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, how much more should we love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Even helping them in ways that would be sacrificial to ourselves. See, the authenticity of our faith is put on display by our devotion to the fellowship with other Christians. So what are ways that we devote ourselves to the same fellowship? Well, one way, very tangibly, we practice already this morning, right? And that was uh, giving to the emergency relief fund, right? Every, every month as we take communion, uh, we give the opportunity uh, for people to give to the emergency relief fund. And then we uh, use those funds to care for people who have needs within our community. But another way that we connect via the fellowship is through our small groups. Now, if you didn't know, right, I'm, I'm pastor discipleship and small groups is under me, right? And, and the whole point of this part of the church improvement series is to talk about how we live this out. And, and primarily, it's, we say that we're a church that doesn't just have small groups. We're a church of, uh, I'm sorry, we don't just have them. We are a church of small groups. And so we believe it's essential Right, that, that we are in small groups. And it's part of the, the way that we have designed our ministry, the way that we have funneled our fellowship, really. It's a place for us to get together. 
So one of the primary places of connection uh, to fellowship within our church is through participation in small groups, right? And what do we do in our small groups? We study the word together. We grow together. We care for one another. We grow in friendships with one another. We encourage and pray for one another. And we mature in our walk with Christ together. We do that in community. We do that in fellowship. And that commitment to one another it isn't just like going to class with another person. Right? It's, it's an acknowledgement that, that we are blood-bought sinners together, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we care for one another as family. It increases, and all this is to increase our love for God and our love for one another. So first commitment is uh, uh, devotion, is instruction in the word. The second is fellowship with God's people. And then the third devotion that we see listed in the passage, I'm going to combine three and four, is the worship of God. The worship of God. Now the breaking of bread is uh, referred to twice in the passage. I believe the first time it is uh, the communion as we practice today. And that's something that we don't, we don't do that in our small groups, but we do regularly, monthly, in our assembly together here at, on Sunday mornings. The second reference, it might be that it's talking about sharing a meal in each other's homes. I think it's, a, it's really the way that we see that they didn't just assemble together as a large group but they also came together within small groups. And so uh, the breaking of bread, uh, we've, we've been talking about how they shared things together. I, I want to focus in, though, on prayer, that, that last commitment on prayer. Prayer is only mentioned one time in our passage. And, and you think, well, maybe it's less significant. Breaking of bread was mentioned twice. I don't think that's how we should view it. I think it's significant enough. It was so significant that it almost goes without mention. Right? Prayer is only mentioned this one time, but it's essential, it's an essential characteristic of the church. We see this modeled throughout the book of Acts. I think it was what just people assumed uh, was happening. Right? What happened before Pentecost? Right? Those believers were gathered in the upper room, devoting themselves to prayer. When it came time to select uh, someone to replace Judas as the 12th apostle, the early church, they didn't have a discussion and rely upon their wisdom Right? They didn't just say, well, let's, let's see, let's take votes. No, they, they asked God to direct them through prayer. The Holy Spirit was not received uh, by the Samaritans until Peter and John prayed for them to happen. This Acts 8. And Saul was praying when God directed Ananias to go and lay hands on him so that he would receive the Spirit in Acts 9. It was after Peter prayed that Dorcas was raised uh, from death to life. Right? All throughout the book of Acts, prayer is so much a part of what the apostles are doing. And if we look at Jesus' life, it was what he was constantly doing. It's worth going through the book of Acts and seeing all the times that Luke mentions prayer and how God responds to the prayers of his people. And yet, I think, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, I think many of us will admit that we struggle in prayer. We struggle to pray at all. And I think the reason why it is so easy for us to neglect prayer is that we don't believe that we're needy. We don't believe that we need it. We don't appreciate just how dependent we really are upon God for every single thing in our lives. 
Right? Think about today. In our modern conveniences, like grocery stores and refrigerators, it seems strange to us, it seems foreign to us that we should ask God to give us our daily bread. And yet, right, what that's part of the Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread. After church today, right, if you want a sandwich for lunch, there's a decent chance that you have a loaf of bread sitting on your counter at home. And if you're out of bread, you can just stop at the store on your way home and pick one up. And when you get to the store, you might even be able to find a sandwich that's already been made. Right? We don't think about food in the same way. We don't think about it as coming from God, about coming from the grocery store. We think about coming from the counter. It seems strange, to us to, uh, strange for us to pray for our daily bread when we feel like we can just figure it out. We can just take care of it for ourselves. I think we neglect prayer in general because we feel like we can take care of anything that comes up. John G. Patton, one of the things that I notice in his biography is how often he turns to prayer. Right? There are natives outside his house, surrounding his house, threatening to burn it down. And so what does he do? He prays. God answers his prayer. We're not typically in those situations. At least I haven't been. I don't think I haven't heard of any of you being in those situations. And so we don't feel the press of the need for prayer. And yet, it still is to be part of our lives because we're just as dependent as any of those other people. But what happens when we don't pray? Well, I think the fruit of a prayerless life, one of the major things that happens is that we don't see, when we don't pray, we don't see what God is doing in our lives. Remember, our, our loving God, he owes us nothing. And yet, what does he do? He condescends, right? He humbles himself and comes down to listen and respond to our prayers. The Almighty, the King of Kings, right? The Eternal One, the One who created the heavens and the earth, listens to our prayers. Turn briefly with me to Luke chapter 11. We look at Luke uh, chapter 11. We see that starting, um, I'm going to read, uh, uh, starting with verse 5, but uh, what we find is that after Jesus has been praying, this is in verse 1, one of his disciples asked Jesus how uh, to teach them how to pray. Right? Jesus has been praying, and now they said, well, will you teach us how to pray? And so we get a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer in uh, Luke 11, 2 through 4. And then in verse 5, Jesus tells them this parable. He says, And he said to them, Which one of you, which of you who has a friend, will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed, and I cannot get up to give you anything. So imagine, right? This is a, this is a one-room house, Right? The one bed, like all the whole families together in bed. And so if this friend gets up out of bed, like the whole house is up. He's got to wake up everybody. It's not like even like a nightlight in the corner that he can just like get a little bread. This would, uh, this would disturb everybody. Yeah, in verse 8 he says, I tell you though, 
He will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet, because of his impudence, or his persistence, might be a better translation, he will give rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. So what does Jesus mean by this parable? It's, it's to, to show them why they should persist in prayer. But, but what is Jesus really saying? Are we supposed to persist in prayer because it's the only way to get God's attention? That's not the point of the parable. Right? It, God is not like the man who was asked for bread in the parable. God is contrasted with the man. Right? The text tells us that God delights to give to his children. Right? Jesus confirms this in, in these following verses, starting with uh, verse 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead give him, uh, ask for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if we ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Even uh, an evil, lousy father isn't going to hand his child a scorpion if he asks for an egg for breakfast. How much more will our heavenly Father, who is perfectly good and kind, give to us what we need, including what we need most, which is the Holy Spirit? See, our persistence in prayer, right, and what, what, what he's calling us to, Jesus is calling us to through that parable, is the fact that, that all our prayers are to be grounded on the goodness and kindness of God. Right? It's, it's not, it wasn't his friendship that got the guy out of the bed. It was the persistence. But think about this. God's going to get out of bed. Ask, seek, knock. When we come together as small groups, Another thing that we do is we pray together, right? Prayer is hard. We forget to pray. But if you go to a small group, you know at least during that time, you'll be called to pray. Right? Admittedly, sometimes right, it's a short amount of time. Sometimes it's a longer time of prayer. But that time of praying together and praying for one another is essential. Right? It grounds us and reminds us that we serve a God who listens to us. A God who delights in answering our prayers. And when he answers those prayers, we rejoice together. Right? If you find it hard to remember to pray, that's a, that's a good reason to pray in small groups, right? Because we, we do it together. And, and if you forget to pray for each other, write it down. Sometimes it's easier to remember to pray for someone else than it is to remember to pray throughout your day for yourself. Maybe not. But I would encourage you to be praying for those who are in your small group. When we're too weak, whether in our body or our spirit, to pray, what do we do? We pray for one another. That's part of the ministry of our small groups. And as we journey through our lives together, praying for one another, our love for God increases, as well as our love for one another. And so we do this to foster our love there's a vulnerability in prayer as well. Like we feel exposed when we're called on to pray. And there are times when you may feel too shy or self-conscious to pray. And if you struggle to pray, or at least to pray out loud, I want to encourage you 
to trust that God hears you and delights to give you what you need. Don't be afraid to speak to him. He loves you more than you love him. He loves you more than anyone else in this world. Trust the other people in your group to pray with you and for you. And I would encourage you to respond to God's grace in your life by asking God to help you to grow in your confidence to pray. Pray together. Celebrate God's answers to prayer together. I should say, if you have someone in your group who doesn't feel comfortable praying out loud, you don't need to pressure them. Remember that God is at work in every believer. And he who began a good work will bring it to completion. Right, so this isn't, all right, I haven't heard you pray. There might be one or two leaders who have done that. As a church, we believe that participation in, in uh, small groups is an essential means by which people grow spiritually. That's how we have designed our ministry here. Within our small groups, right, there is that, that intimate time, or there's intended to be that intimate time of study, a more intimate setting of studying and applying the scriptures to our everyday lives, an ability to challenge one another uh, and what we are thinking and, and how we're growing. There's a, a more intimate setting in which we can love and care for one another and practice the fellowship that's mentioned here, a fellowship that's marked by generosity and joy. And there's a more intimate setting where we can pray for one another and with one another. There's a a more intimate setting where we can encourage and strengthen each other, where we can be vulnerable in our struggles and support one another in our Christian walk as we journey together toward heaven. Our desire is that we would grow in maturity in Christ, that each of us, and, and that we want you to be in a small group, not just to fill in numbers, We want you to grow in your love for Jesus and for one another. And so that's why we encourage everyone to be involved in small groups. And so if you are not in a small group, I I would encourage you to talk with me uh, after the service or give me a call this week, and I'd be happy to work to get you connected to a small group. May God help us to respond to his grace in our lives by devoting ourselves to the instruction uh, in God's word, to fellowship with God's people, to the worship of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is loving and kind. We thank you that you are a God who sees our weakness and our frame and knows us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who places us not simply out of harm's way in the way toward, uh, to hell and, and changed our direction toward heaven, but you have placed us in a community that we might walk together and be encouraged by one another. Father, I pray that you would help us where we are weak in our devotion to encourage one another and strengthen one another, that our resolve would be all the more strong as we uh, meet together. Father, we want Jesus to be being much much of in our lives. We want to love him and honor him and treasure him above all other things. I pray that you would use the community of saints to do that. ask in Jesus' name, amen.